Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast, day seven of self-isolation. Ian has a routine. Tell us about it, Ian. Yeah, so long story short, camp had to be canceled because we were technically an indoor recreational activity because we have indoor recreational activities. And anything under 50 people used to be allowed, but it's no longer allowed after the government of Ontario issued uh, this to be a pandemic, to be a emergency. So I'm back home from camp. I'm officially back home from camp. But over the last two weeks, I realized, wait, I've been having some proper routines over the last few weeks. I'm getting up early when the sun's up. I'm doing things throughout the day at camp. We had such structured days. And being now on time. At- <laughs> yeah, so I called Rachel right when it was time to record the podcast today. I'm actually in a good spot. I'm trying to stay positive throughout this quarantine because it's a very depressing thing. But I'm trying to be social through playing video games with people and talking to people on the phone. FaceTime. FaceTime chats. Yeah, there, there's ways to make this not terrible. And I think pro athletes have been doing a really cool thing. You've seen Morgan Riley uh, showing a video of him washing his hands and uh, trying to keep a positive message it's going. Splashing water all over the place. <laughs> Zach Hyman's challenging fans to NHL 20. So That's pretty awesome. And And Fortnite or whatever games you're playing, but... I don't know. I'm trying to stay positive in the wake of this craziness, which is zombie apocalypse-esque when it comes to the walk down to the supermarket to buy toilet paper, where there was like basically a a non-physical fight for these objects. And it's just, man, we live in a society, but those rules are slowly falling apart. It's a weird world we live in. Yeah, but I'm honestly glad to see you're kind of getting in a routine because now instead of me calling you like, 10 minutes after we were supposed to start recording, like you're calling me like, hey, I'm ready to go. And I'm like, oh. I even said to you, I was pause my TV show. I'm like, this is kind of surprising. I try, you know, sometimes I'm two steps forward and one step back, but I'm trying my best to just stay positive throughout these tough times. We think it's time to start focusing on what we were best at when it comes to the topics of this show. Our first one that we ever did was the one three one power play. We've heard from some people who work in hockey that this is something they're really interested in when we talk about tactics and the numbers behind things and getting into a bit of the deeper components of hockey, but trying to explain them in a way that makes sense. So I think we're going to get back to that today. What's the topic du jour, Rachel? Well, we've kind of teased it, I guess, the past couple podcasts. We had to have an emergency COVID-19 podcast, but uh, we're going to do behind the net stuff today, whether it's even strength, power play. Uh, we're going to talk about it just kind of as a tactic and... Uh, talk about some work that you can read or um, teams that you can watch that are really good examples of this tactic. We'll talk about why it's effective, what players are really good at it, um, and kind of what skill sets are involved with being a very good behind-the-net player. So when I think behind-the-net, as a nerd, I tend to think of Ryan Stimson's research, who we're going to get into. But if you've never heard of Ryan Stimson, just think of Wayne Gretzky behind the net. This is where the strategy really, if you think of people who are close in the game of hockey and you're trying to explain the behind the net strategy to someone, just show them some footage of Wayne Gretzky and you can show them just how beneficial of a strategy it can be. There's a reason it's called Gretzky's office. (laughs) Yeah, 
And if you dive into the numbers behind it, they back up the fact that, yes, this is something that drives goaltenders crazy. And if you do it with consistency and you're able to pull off these passes, you're going to score a lot of goals. So let's dive into some of the numbers behind this. What does Ryan Stimson's research teach us? Um, So he talks about it from a theoretical standpoint as well. And uh, he's got a book out. It's called Tape to Space. Uh, and it kind of goes really in depth. So I highly recommend A, that you get that and B, that you read it um, because it explains a bunch of different hockey tactics. But basically where behind the net uh, sits, Stimson, he kind of says like, listen, you don't need to have a position or a formation. It's more of like the routes that players are taking. So it's not about the where guys are standing, whether they're left-handed or right-handed. It's more about the routes that they're skating and players moving in the slot and player movement behind the net, puck movement behind the net. It doesn't matter basically what players are in what spots as long as the routes are kind of being used properly. Um, and you pronounce so, route like such an American. Route. Route? I'm, yeah, route running, route running. It's funny, if you talk football with anyone, they'll say route running, but I'm such a Canadian, I've always pronounced it route. But I know what you mean. It's like the little kind of patterns that the the players are skating in. If you've never watched football before, it's kind of like running a streak. You run north-south. You know, you run a, a post route. You run north, and then you make a 90-degree cut. You know, different things that help get you open. So what he was saying is, realistically, uh, you need to have two players kind of come through the slot as your options because the D will gravitate towards player one who comes through the slot and that's naturally where their attention will be focused obviously because it's the first player in the slot that's going to be identified as the player of danger but then if that player finishes their route and goes through ideally you have the second player kind of following suit a little bit of a different route potentially like the exact mirror opposite route and that person comes in and they're the actual recipient because now the D are focused on the first player that went through and they don't necessarily pick up on the fact that that second player is coming through at a different route but still into the danger area and that's where you have kind of the against the grain puck movement that can lead to the scoring chance. So it's very much... We call those crossing routes or crossing routes as Rachel would say but yeah it's it's the idea is you get one player to pull the defense to the right and then you throw the quick underneath route to the left In hockey, you have one player skating in from the left, everyone's drawn to him, and then the player coming in from the other side, if you pass it to him, all of a sudden he has tons of open space. The Patriots run this kind of play all the time. The Chiefs ran it with Tyreek Hill all the time. It's a very simple concept, but if you pull it off with high-end players, you can have a lot of success. Yeah, and that's football, which um, I don't watch. (laughs) Um, And I literally only watch Tom Brady, and that's all I care about. You're not going to be watching him in a Patriots uniform moving forward, which makes me very happy as a longtime Colts fan. Yeah, you know what? Like, I've always loved Peyton Manning and Tom Brady, and so that's like, I don't know. It's a little weird, but it's one of those things where... Buccaneer, great, Tom Brady. Sorry, we can move on with some hockey talk now. Yeah, I was going to say, we're comparing things to football. We need to be talking, like, hockey terminology because I'm going to be willing to bet that a lot of people don't necessarily understand who Tyreek Hill is. And to be honest, I know people who don't know who Tom Brady is. So (laughs) there's that. Tyreek Hill isn't a great human being, but he's a very fast football player. We are not absolutely getting into that at all. Um, But basically the crux of Stipson's research is that you need to have the player with the puck behind the net. There's got to be some movement, 
But then the movement and the routes in the slot that come through the slot and are available for passes are actually key because realistically, you need to have the D moving their heads as much as possible because that creates more blind spots. The more your head moves, technically, the more you miss um, because your peripheral vision isn't as strong when your head is moving. That's a scientific thing. Um, and that's why... Are you referring to the defender or the goalie? Because I think the answer is both. Both. But, yeah. Um, yeah, if the puck's behind the net, Ian, as a goalie, can explain this. Um, you have to look over your shoulder. There is a an inherent blind spot. Like, I don't care what level of goalie you are. Everybody has blind spot. No one has 360 vision. It's just how often are you trained to check in those blind spots and how often are you It's caught? analogous to driving when you quickly check to see where everything is. Do people check their blind spots? Because, like, I have some really good examples of some driving maneuvers that would indicate no. The best goalies in the world are great at checking their blind spots, and they're early to cross-crease passes. You see it with goalies like Carey Price and Frederick Anderson. If you're reading the play quickly, you can get to that spot faster, but it's really hard to keep track of everything, and only the best goaltenders on the planet know where every single player is at, 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 that, at a single point in time. And to be fair... The f- even if they do, players shooting so accurate now that they might not even get to the to the point where they can stop the puck, which is why having defensemen who get caught puck watching, um, which still happens at the NHL level, it's surprising. Um, but I mean, we watch a lot of the Leafs, so we're used to it. But <laughs> there's a lot of puck watching, and so when you have the player focused behind the net, they have no idea what's going on behind them for the most part. And so now you have player one coming in on their route and the DCs that, oh, gotta like focus in on that. So now it's like puck and player one. And most of the time, they have no idea the second player is coming. So that's sort of what Stimson's research gets at. Um, Tactically, I guess the main thing you're focused on breaking down when you're behind the net you're going to have two defensemen and a low forward in the defensive zone, usually the center. What are you trying to do tactically that behind the net is easier to accomplish than, say, if you were along the boards or in the middle of the ice? I would say that, first of all, you have the net, which in itself is a barrier, right? So you can use the net as a protection-type separation um, thing, I don't know what else you would call it. It's kind of like a pick and roll in basketball. You just have this object that's giving you that extra space. You see it all the time on the breakout where a defenseman takes it behind their net and kind of has that extra barrier now if they need to make it. Because now you've got to chase one way or the other. You can use it now with people doing the Michigan where you flip the puck up on your stick and throw it in the net. That's apparently become a thing. But Andrei Svechnikov, it's just his career now, is just scoring those goals. (laughs) But realistically, the net is a barrier, so now you're it's it's a little bit harder to defend because because it's the player just can't come at you. They can't come through the net. Um, and so that kind of presents a challenge in and of itself to defend. Not to mention you can bank the puck off the back of the net. Um, we definitely need, like, Crosby's really good at that. Um, Crosby and Gretzky, they're so good at just using the net as their personal kind of give-and-go machine. Yeah, as if they need help in general. Um, so it's one of those things where playing basically below the goal line, uh, if you have someone who's kind of in the vicinity of the net behind the goal line, and then you have someone who's kind of in the corner where the goal line meets the boards, uh, you can do puck movement that way, and you can kind of move it as a teeter-totter. And it's, you know how people like cycle 
but they use almost the face-off circle as the cycle spot. You can cycle behind the net, and now you're forcing the goalie to be looking behind, and you're forcing the defenseman to be probably have their toe caps face towards the boards, which is never a good thing. Um, and Can I talk about another aspect that I think is really important as a goaltender? Yes. Use you're your... on your goal line. Right. So if they make a quick pass out front and there's a quick shot, you don't have time to get to the top of your crease and shut down the angle. You're just going to quickly slide over in your crease. You're going to be very deep in your net. And that means that there's a lot more net to shoot at for the shooter. So this is where if you make a pass out to, let's say, the dot, the left dot or the right dot, doesn't really matter. You make a pass out to the dot and a pinching defenseman or a high forward, they rip a one-timer. There's a lot more net for them to shoot at because most of the time when they take a shot from that location, the goalie's at the top of the crease. Sometimes if it's a one-on-one rush, the goalie's outside the top of his crease and he's able to cut down that angle very easily, he or she. And then... If you have that pass coming from behind the net, all of a sudden that goaltender's on the goal line. He's way more backed up in his or her crease, and it's much easier for the shooter to find a hole and beat a goalie, especially high-end shooters at the NHL level. Right, and so now I think probably want to talk about who's really good at it. Um, And every single time someone brings up behind the net, and we already brought him up a couple minutes ago, but the goal... That Chris Letang scored, that Crosby got the primary assist against the Senators in the playoffs, where Crosby literally held the puck behind the net, I think it was like 23 seconds, where he just kind of, Jason Spezza was chasing him and he was going back around the net, using his edges, stayed behind the goal line the entire time, came out, fell on his knees, passed it to Letang, who just hammered it. I mean... That is, that's a single use behind the net, but it's one of those is things Is there a where better example of Sidney Crosby's legendary ass than just... That? <laughs> basically posting up Jason Spezza for 20 seconds below the goal line before making a great pass to open up space for a secondary assist, or was it a primary assist? I can't it remember. It was the primary It was just a phenomenal assist. play. It was a phenomenal play. He's so fun to watch behind the net. Even later in his career, it's part of the reason I'm so upset there's no more sports... I loved this Penguins team this year because it seemed like they were all playing the Crosby style of play, even when Crosby wasn't playing. You're seeing players like Jake Gensel and and Connor Sherry just got traded there. Uh, Pick your Brian Rust. It seems like every player in Pittsburgh is just kind of stepping up in Crosby's absence this year. And they're so good at getting below the goal line, getting the goalie to look one way, pass it the other way, and then a quick tap in. I know that in Mark Shifley's uh, Player Tribune article, he talked about this, but I think by just playing with someone who has that kind of vision behind the net, you're naturally going to make more passes just by osmosis. Yeah, and that's something that you learn from, right? This player plays behind the net, and Crosby, uh, I've seen, I want to say, McDavid's definitely done it, Mitch Marner's done it, where they're using the back of the net, the D comes to challenge them, and they bank the puck off the back of the net, go the other direction, and now they've created space. And now you can make a pass, you can escape out yourself. Like, there's just so much you can do, but it gets the defense moving, gets the coverage kind of out of place at that point, and now you've created a scoring opportunity for yourself. And so I think with Crosby, he's just so dangerous, A, because of that ass. Like, it's he's probably, I would say, <laughs> the best puck that protector ass, in the NHL. It's impossible to get the puck off of him. When he feels like he's going to handle the puck, now that Datsuk's not in the NHL, he's probably unmatched in his ability to just hang on to the puck. Um, Prime Fortin and Prime Kopitar were really fun to watch in that regard. 
Yeah. And then who, who else is good? Obviously, we should probably touch on Gretzky because this is where it all started. Yeah, that Wayne Gretzky guy. You know what's crazy about him is that he wasn't a phenomenal skater. He wasn't the fastest guy in the league. He wasn't that strong. If you look at him, he was pretty thin compared to everyone else, but he was just so good at making the right play under pressure to an open player. He was smarter and- than everybody else. Yeah, and that's the thing. You couldn't pressure him because if you pressured him, it meant that someone else was open and he was going to find them. Do you remember that famous goal when he was in L.A. and he was standing behind the net just stick handling Luke Robitaille, puts his hand up and goes, just hang on a sec, like wait. Skates all the way outside the zone. Gretzky's just handling the puck behind the net, comes all the way back down, like right down the pipe. And Gretzky just fires a laser beam pass to him and it's just in the back of the net. He just stood behind the net and just handled the puck. Robitaille goes, ah, just hang on a sec. And it's a goal. Like, it's just so difficult to defend. I mean, to be fair, that specific play, I think that's a bit of an oopsies by the defense. I think that should have but been a bit more But that shows you the fact that where are they all looking? That yeah, is a prime example. At the most talented player in the world with the puck on his stick. And if usually on your team, it's the most talented player on your team that you want to have the puck on their stick behind the net. And they're the one who's going to make the decision. Okay, I'm going to make this quick saucer pass. Oh, I see some open space there. I'm going to quickly pass it to you. And then you're going to make that secondary pass, wide open, back door, easy tap. And Pittsburgh basically scored all their goals that way this year. And it's really fun to watch. And it's why Crosby's so great. It's part of what made Gretzky so great. Johnny Gaudreau, he kind of does it in a different way than those guys did. I feel like his quickness and his deception kind of allows him to scare both the defense and the goaltender. I think if you look at uh, wraparound goals over the last few years, I think Gaudreau leads the league in that category by a mile. That wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Just because he's very shifty in how he skates. He's almost like a water bug. It's very... um... It's very similar to Patrick Kane in the fact that it's it's very shifty and very quick movements. He's very agile on his skates. So the fact that he can turn one direction and then fire the other way for a one-timer is not surprising if, if he had the most wraparound goals. I wouldn't be surprised by that. You know who else is really good in that department? No. Michael Granlund is someone I wanted to bring up. Didn't and Stimson it- write something about that? Yeah, he had one of my favorite articles was actually about Michael Granlund and kind of using this data to predict who might be able to break out in the following season. And long story short, Michael Granlund uh, succeeded. Uh, he completed a bunch of passes from behind the net in what was the year? Is it 2016? I want to say 2016, 2017. Michael Granlund completed a bazillion passes from behind the net out to the slot, and his teammates weren't finishing. But that was uncharacteristic. The expected shooting percentage based on where those shots were coming from was way higher than the actual shooting percentage. So Ryan Stimson's wrote an article saying, yeah, he's going to break out next year. This is someone we should pay attention to. Lo and behold, he broke out the next season and had a crazy amount of assists. And I think it's just a great example of we don't necessarily want to look at goals when we're trying to predict the future. And I know that that's something that a lot of us have a hard time wrapping our heads around, but Shots are a better predictor of future success than goals, and passes from behind the net are a better predictor of future assists than previous assists. And it's something that Michael Granlin did exceptionally well one season. He continued to do it the next season, and then the pucks started going in. It's something that I really like talking about when when I dive into the numbers, because I'm looking at, okay, here's what happened, but what's a better predictor of what's going to happen? 
and this behind the net passing thing passes through the slot. These are all things we can look at and say, yeah, this is something that is going to lead to goals. Even if it didn't in the past, it's definitely going to in the future. And that article, I think, broke it down spectacularly. Yeah, and I think if you Google Ryan Stimson, Michael Granlund, you'll be able to find it. Um, and it, you know what you just reminded me of? World Championships, Michael Granlund scored the lacrosse goal, and it was the Finn, the Finnish like male people company used it and made a stamp out of it. I don't know why I just remembered that, but he did that, I want to say, like five or six years ago at the world championships. And so he's, I really like watching Michael Granlund. Um, super entertaining. And I was, uh, I was talking to Ryan Stimson and to say he was not shocked about this, uh, about his breakout was, uh, would be an understatement, but I just think that you need to also have, you need to have players that match with that style. So if you have a player like Goudreau or a player like Crosby, well, anybody can play with Crosby, but or Granlund, who's very good at distributing the puck from behind the net. You have to have a shooter or a net front presence, someone who is good at skating those routes and can accept the puck and, and get it off quickly to capitalize on the fact that the goalie is that deep in the net, right? So I think it's a crazy player matching concept, as well. crazy idea. Is it not beneficial to have a defenseman back there making those passes? Because I think of some of the best offensive defensemen in the NHL, like when Quinn Hughes now or Kale McCarr crazy. get down there. I like it when they're down there. I like it when they're, they have a forward, they have a winger covering them, and they're down there. And I, I trust their ability to make the right read from below the goal line against a usually a bad defensive player. Wingers are usually much worse defensively than centers. And that's why they play wing. <laughs> yeah, so when when a defenseman's pinching and they're low in the zone on a play, I think if it's an extremely talented defenseman, I want them in that spot so they can make that pass. If it's Andrew McDonald or Chris Russell or Cody Cece, no, I don't want them down what that low. Marty I think Marincin? they're better off. Hey, Marty Marinchin <laughs> scored a highlight reel goal in the last week of you know live sports, so... Don't talk shit about Martin Marinch, and that hurts my feelings. Oh, but... it just takes a cursory look at your report cards. <laughs> Five stars, game ball, Marty. But no, it's really sad that I feel like that would be cool, though, if you had somebody like a Quinn Hughes, a Kale McCarr, who they somehow flipped and they were playing the bottom behind the net role and they were distributing the puck. I That's. Eric Carlson, is he not someone that you would want running things on on a San Jose power play if you ran it from behind the net? Why not have the best passer, arguably in the NHL, making passes from one of the most dangerous spots on the ice? I like the idea. It's not bad. Okay, what about like a power play tactic though? Because so SKA St. Petersburg uses the behind the net power play and it was kind of brought to the forefront with Nikita Gusev and I believe... Vadim Shipashov when they were both Vegas there. legend they're both Vegas legends <laughs> no but I, I think it started there Columbus has definitely used it we use it at York so I have a year's worth of data for that but SKA really uses it and they make a mockery of teams penalty kills with it so the cool thing they do is let's try to picture this because this is so much easier with video and it's hard explaining it over a podcast in, in audio form but I'll try my best you have a right sh- you have a right hand shot offensively let's look at this in the offensive zone you have a right hand shot in the left corner and a left hand shot in the right corner 
The reason is it's easier for them to make a pass out front if they're on their kind of strong side along the boards, if that makes sense. It's almost like they're breaking the puck out from the corner and they want to be able to make the quickest pass possible. That's why it's easier to have more of the ice opened up for you. You're not going to be shooting. You want to be in a passing position. So you have those two great passers below the line, and then you have three players trying to get open. You have the one man down low in front of the net. That's usually, you'd consider him the center, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the center. It's just a forward. You could have your center down low below the goal line. You could have your center playing high up for the the shot. The idea of positions in hockey have always bothered me, to be honest. I think players need to be more interchangeable so that you can play both up front and in your own zone. So that's just another topic for another day. I don't really love positions. But a right-hand shot in the left corner, a left-hand shot in the right corner, you're going to have a one-time option right in front of the net in that low slot. And then the two high players, you'd call them your quote-unquote defensemen, but... Why not go all five forwards on the power player? You need you know at least Sudbury four do that. as many offensive. Uh, you know you want to score as many goals as you can. Have two good shots in that position to skate down, get to the dot, and one time it. This is where you'd want your Ovechkin. This is where you'd want your Austin Matthews. This is where you'd want your Stamkos, the player that you want to get the, the puck in a good shooting position to rip a one timer. And SK St. Petersburg has been running it for the last few years. They've been doing a great job of it. I'm just saying. This is something innovative and creative that the NHL should do more of. We don't see it at 5-on-4. Sometimes we see a bit of it at 5-on-3. I know Johnny Gaudreau loves to get below the goal line. I know William Nylander loves to get below the goal line on Toronto's power play. I want to say five on four or Cam five on three. Atkinson does on Columbus. He's definitely part of it, but what Columbus does is they'll take it, let's say the puck's on the left side. Uh, they'll have it on like just kind of between the half wall and the goal line. They'll move it to behind the net, and then it'll be a quick pass out the other side. So now we're on the right side for a one-timer, I believe, to either Wierenski or Jones, whichever defenseman sort of happens to be there. Um, and it's Wierenski usually runs it, if I'm not mistaken. And it works with great effectiveness. Like, when you move the puck that quickly from one half wall to behind the net to the other, not only do you have skates facing in the wrong direction, you have heads facing in the wrong direction, you have sticks in the wrong lanes... And then you have a goalie that's like, well, I just better hope this hits me. The counter argument to that is that they got off to a ridiculously hot start the year they had Sam Gagne on the power play for the first time. I want to say it was 2016-17. And they basically ran their 1-3-1 power play the the same way most people do. It's just they put their one behind the net instead of in front of the net. And then they put their one in the middle in front of the net. And now all of a sudden that diamond, instead of it being a diamond high in the offensive zone... It was a diamond low in the offensive zone. Right, for them you to compacted the penalty kill. But with only one man below the goal line, I think teams were able to take away the two passes they really wanted. And after you do that, there's not much else you can really do from behind the net. This is why I, I kind of like the idea of having two players behind the net. Which it's is what York does. The puck. Yeah. <laughs> we so put two players behind the net. If you have a Gretzky or a Crosby, you can give them the puck behind the net. They'll be fine. But yeah, most players can get pressured and potentially lose the puck in a two-on-one situation unless they're an all-world passer. But for most players, that's very difficult to do. If you have two players behind the goal line, it's easier for them to maintain possession of the puck and break down the defense a bit better, at least in my opinion. It's not something we have a lot of evidence with at the NHL level because there haven't been many examples of it, but 
it's still something that I truly believe in because you look at what happens when you get that puck moving below the goal line and it creates open ice, it creates one-time opportunities, and it creates a lot of chances that the goaltenders and the defense aren't comfortable giving up. The odds that two of the penalty killing, the both penalty killing defensemen chase behind the goal line in two separate corners, I would say are rather thin unless there's a bobbled puck or a trigger that would say, okay, like release and go pressure. So there will naturally be more opportunities. It's just, can you effectively run it? And I think that they're in the same way that there was an appetite or there wasn't an appetite to change to the one, three run originally, or put four forwards on the power play. There's not as much of an appetite to change and go to a different power play tactic. Yeah, rewatching some old hockey, I was watching an 09 game between Pittsburgh and Washington the other night because, again, live sports don't exist anymore. So we're going to rewatch some old sports that I love watching. You get Baby Crosby, Sergey Fedorov was on that team, Sergey Gonchar. It was fun to watch. But both teams had two defensemen on the power play and they were launching shots from the blue line. And I'm thinking, wait, you can get better shots than that which is kind of what the NHL has realized over the last few years. You look at shooting percentages, they've risen like crazy in the last two seasons relative to what we've seen this decade. Why? Because shot selection has been better. What we're trying to argue here is that on the power play, the shot selection has been good, but I think it can get better. Why can't we get to 30% for the best power play in the NHL? Tampa Bay is kind of the the best example in terms of what high-end skill whipping the puck around can do. I'd be curious if they put more of an emphasis on puck movement from behind the net out to one-timers like Kucherov and Stamkos at the dots. I'm wondering if they could up that shooting percentage even a bit more just because of the quality of their shooters. Yeah, I think if you started dishing out passes, like let's say it was Braden Point that was dishing out the passes from behind the net and putting them on tees for Kucherov and Stamkos, now you've got goalies looking the other way and you've got that one-timer from either one of them coming at you. That's... That's asking a lot. And and, so... and then you can have uh, Kucherov kind of dip below the goal line a few times if he wants to to make it two pl- uh, players behind the goal line. Right, it could be a seesaw, which is what York does. We run a seesaw. Exactly. You have talented players who all of a sudden when there's open ice, they get into open ice and they make some great passes. If you can do it from below the goal line, right. it creates higher percentage shooting opportunities if you're able to complete those passes. You need the high-end talent to make those passes. But if you have those players, I like the thought of them getting below the goal line more often. So moral of the story is, use the net as a weapon because it is a barrier and something that creates space, which is what everyone's trying to create, is more space for themselves and for their teammates. Use below the goal line to create your offense. Force the goalie to turn their head. Force the defenseman to turn their skates and their head and have multiple routes coming through the slot so that you can give different options. I think that's kind of what we're getting at is use the net as a weapon. Ryan Stimson's been preaching it for years, and I'm on his side with this one. I want to see more innovation in the NHL on the power play. I want to see more behind the net action at even strength, at 5-on-4, at 5-on-3, any game state. I don't think we're using one of the most efficient weapons offensively. I don't think we're utilizing it enough. I think we're kind of where the NBA was doing a lot of isolation instead of pick and rolls and three-pointers. I think we're kind of at that stage in the NHL. We have these talented players, but I'm not sure if we're optimizing their talents. I think we're relying on some lower percentage shots when we could be creating some more efficient offense just by getting to that high. The high danger area is in front of the net, but as a passer, the high danger area is behind the net, and I want to see more of it. I like it. So that's our talk on behind the net. 
I think we're going to be doing this every week where we take one topic, one tactic, one idea when it comes to hockey and breaking it down in as much detail as we can, both tactically and uh, statistically and looking at evidence and trying our best to kind of use the latest research to discuss new things in the game of hockey that we want to see more of or maybe old tactics that were once popular but aren't anymore and why is that? Just trying to get into more of the uh, X's and O's because Rachel Dory used to work for a team and she knows a lot of that. But we're also really good at trying to get the numbers to also back some things up with some evidence. So we're trying to get the best of both worlds here. And I'd say we did a half decent job there. Let's move on to the Kovalev shift now. All right. So here's your question for you. If the NHL resumes in two months, and let's be clear, we're not going to speculate that that's when it's going to resume. Let's just say it does. So if the NHL resumes in two months, eight weeks from now, what players are back from injury and how does that impact the playoff picture? So obviously, like Nathan McKinnon and probably everyone in Colorado will be healthy. Seth Jones would be healthy. Uh, Who else would be healthy? I don't know, but I saw a great tweet about uh, how someone picked up Nathan McKinnon and Seth Jones in fantasy, <laughs> and I just thought, man, while the world is falling apart, someone is making some very smart decisions in the fantasy hockey league. This is where if you're making smart investments in the stock market now, like when people shorted the the housing market mm-hmm. when the world was falling apart in 2008, 2009-ish, yeah, you know, that's what it felt like to me and on a much smaller scale, because you're probably not making much money from this other than the whatever hundred bucks that you might have in it with your with your friends or your office people. But smart decision there to pick up Seth Jones right now if he's still available. Yeah, so you're just kind of looking down the list. Tory Krug would likely be back for Boston, um, as would Brandon Carlo. The Hurricanes would probably get Dougie Hamilton, Sammy Vatnin, James Reimer, and... I don't believe they'd get Brett Pesci back, but to get... Is Sammy Vatnin one of their six best defensemen? Yes. Is he one of their five best defensemen? I don't have their roster up, I could not tell you. With Pesci out of the lineup, yes he is. Okay, but I think Pesci and Hamilton will be back, and man, Carolina, even without Dougie Hamilton, I really like their play, but... When Dougie Hamilton was there, he was putting up Norris quality numbers, both in terms of his raw point totals and you look at some of the underlyings where he's just driving play phenomenally in the right direction, resulting in a lot of offense when he's on the ice. So Carolina gets positively impacted. Now you have Colorado who, listen to this injury list. Colin Wilson, Nazem Kadri, Matt Calvert, Philip Grubauer, Miko Rantanen, Andre Burakovsky, Nathan McKinnon would all likely be back. That is literally two lines of players. Like, that has to vault Colorado pretty high up there, does it not? It reminds me of the New Jersey Nets getting Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. You're thinking, wait a minute, this is a completely different team. If if we restart the season in July or August, or if we actually end up playing playoff games into early September, I mean, players whose injuries that you assumed had them out for the season might not have them out for the season if this coronavirus carries things out for another couple months, which realistically I think might happen. So again, we'll see what happens. We can only play things by ear. Schools in Ontario are closed until April 6th. The leagues have said that we're taking a two-week to 30-day hiatus. Let's check again to see how things are going. But if the season does start back up again this year or the playoffs do resume in the summer, there are going to be some interesting changes to, to betting odds, and this is something that Dom Lichichin could probably look into. 
hey, these these injuries where major players are coming back and that team that looked like they were kind of out of it, they might not be out of it anymore. What I'm wondering is what teams are negatively impacted by it. I guess the teams that were formerly the beneficiary of their rivals having major injuries? Yeah, I would assume so. So so the healthiest teams are the ones who are hurt the most by coronavirus. That's such a bizarre sentence. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's... that's so, like, <laughs> I would say... I mean, when you think about it, St. Louis would stand to get Vladimir Tarasenko back after losing him for the entire year. Like, that's not insignificant. Um, and so I think that, realistically, you'd, you'd be looking at, unless a player had a six-month injury, you'd be looking at basically healthy lineups for everyone, which I think would probably make for a really entertaining playoffs, because then you'd get teams with everyone healthy. And obviously, I don't think that they'd be in the greatest of shape, but by the time you get through an 82-game season, are you in the greatest of shape anyways, or is your body pretty much broken? Because So this is going to be the weird part, because I think players are going to be in more... Uh, how do I wear this? Maybe in better shape than they've been in when it comes to rest, but they won't have the game shape of having played NHL hockey for the last few weeks. Right. So I'm I'm curious if you're a doctor and you're going, okay, there's less physical load on this player now because all they're doing is working out at home, so all of a sudden they're more rested. But at the same time, their body isn't used to the wear and tear of a 20-minute high-intensity hockey game. So... What's the the trade-off there? I'm, I'm curious what, what your perspective would be because I know that you're doing a lot more medical research than I am these days. Um, I To be honest, like I think that if the NHL comes back, uh, there's going to be a mini training camp associated with it anyways, probably a week or so, maybe two. Um, and Do we get more preseason games? That's absolutely not. No chance. Um, I, I think it's it'll be good because you'll have players... No matter what, players, we see a lot of loosey-goosiness at the beginning of any season, but and you see it start to tighten up, but what you don't see from behind the scenes is the load and the fact that players are not able to perform at the same rate that they were at the beginning of the year because their body has had such an incredible load on it for months. So now you Sometimes you hear that from players right after the players right after the playoffs end. They go, Man, I was at like 30% exactly and so now game. you have an opportunity where players are coming back and there's not really an excuse for them to be anything but a hundred percent because like unless I think Jeff O'Neill was talking about it on the radio unless you're just getting hammered and eating all kinds of junk food like if you're staying in shape and you give your body the opportunity to recover this could be really beneficial and of course it'll take a couple games for you to get back into the the game shape and used to the physicality but there's no reason that your body should be suffering from wear and tear the way it usually does in the playoffs. Like Nobody should be playing with a separated shoulder or anything like that. How many NHL players do you think are going to those parties in uh, Florida on the beach? Uh, I don't even want to go down that road. I am so angry at every single one of those people. And I hope that when there's a movie made about this pandemic, that they use that footage and every single person in there gets named and is made to be an absolute idiot. Anyways, I just hope it's better than the movie 2012 because that movie sucked. I've never saw it. So that is, I think it overall, I think it has a positive impact because when you play 82 games, even if you play 60 games, like you have a load on your body that is going to impact your ability to perform at peak levels. And so this month or two off could be, the best thing in terms of 
players being able to play at a healthy rate and, and really give it all they got. So now that we've said that coronavirus is the best thing that could have possibly happened, uh, let, let's get off the ice. Right. Okay, so that was the Kovalev shift brought to you by Major League Sox. And you can use the code STAFFGRAPH on the website to pick up a couple pairs of socks. And with that, we're going to give you our top three socks to purchase. I'll let you go first. This is from Kaylee Chung. She sent it in. She's like, hey, give me your top three Major League socks to purchase. So, Ian, you want to give us your three? Okay, well, I think you got to go with a Matt Sundin, just because I'm a, I'm a Leafs fan, and that's my go-to. And... I think that hateable players sometimes make for better merchandise than others. So because I hate Matthew Kachuk so much, I'm sure that there are people out there who love this guy. So I'm going to go with him just because I, I can't stand his, his face. And if you had it on a sock, I'm sure it's something that could really rile people up. And my personal favorites are my purple bab socks because those were the CAMH ones. And my girlfriend works at CAMH. She's a nurse right now, and she still has to go in and do Bless her job. Bless her heart. That's what I mean. There, there are people out there who still have to, you know, take the risks that the rest of us don't have to make when we're at home in self-quarantine here. So I've been wearing those today in support of her. So thank you, Terry Ann, for all you do. What are your top three? Um, mine are Henrik Lundqvist. Um, Mark Just Andre because you like looking at his face? They're a really good sock, okay? Um, Mark andre Fleury. Because I like the Vegas colors on the socks. I think they're really cool. And uh, He's the, also not bad looking. The Leon Dreisaitl ones. Because um, they have the... Or- oh, he is not a looker. Okay, that's offensive. Um, <laughs> the orange socks... Just, to German like, people? <laughs> they He's literally called King Leon back home. So I'll have you know, sir, that no one cares. Um, I like the orange. I think it pops and you can wear it with a lot. So those are my three. Um, that's what I buy. Um, and I'll hop on with what Ian said. Anyone who is working on the front lines, whether it's nurse, doctor, uh, first responder, healthcare people, people who are trying to get healthcare supplies out to these places, um, cleaners, like any of that, like, thank you. Those are the essential services that we need. And to everyone who stayed inside on St. Patrick's Day, thank you to you as well, because um, you definitely helped. This would be way worse if we had had parties on Ezra Street in Waterloo. And, I mean, Queens is a different story. But to everyone who's been helping um, and is on the front lines, uh, thank you for that. I love watching celebrities who are taking it seriously. Like when you see uh, Mr. Brightside being sung in the mirror by, by the lead Flowers. singer of The Killers. Yeah. You see the, the Morgan Riley, the Zach Hyman stuff. Sergi Baca's running laps in his hallway. Mark Andre Fleury's uh, <laughs> donating hundreds of thousands of dollars. Brooks Like had a really good video out helping people with if they want to do some fitness stuff. He has some ideas for Ryan you, so. Reynolds is donating like a million meals, like just really good stuff. Anyway, so we're going to try this and, weird like, thing where we're not allowed to go outside, but there's a community and people care about each other. It's nice knowing that this doesn't have to be a super negative thing. Right. So we're going to do something a little different. There's not a whole lot of hockey questions to be asked. So instead of the mailbag, while we're kind of on hiatus, we're going to do top three. So we sent out a tweet that is basically top three blank and you can ask us to name your top three whatever and so we've curated producer connor thank you for curating all of the suggestions and i think we'll do like two an episode 
Um, so the two will do this episode for our top Should three. Should we do three an episode? Wouldn't that make sense to do three top threes per episode? Well, we, okay, fine. We'll do three top threes. So we just did the top three major league socks. We'll do, because we need to stay inside and not go outside and be g- cognizant of flattening the curve, we'll do top three series to binge watch and top three quarantine snacks. What do we want to start with? Top three series to binge watch. I'll put Rick and Morty up there. One of my favorite TV shows. I think there's only uh, three seasons. They're on the fourth right now. I love it. Can't get enough of it. Sarcastic humor. It's my kind of humor. Okay. It's actually a smart show too, but there's a joke online about how, oh, you need to have a certain intelligence to understand Rick and Morty. No, the people who get up their own ass with Rick and Morty really bother me, but really fun comedy that I think people should watch because it's, uh, it's not dumb. And it's also, uh, it makes me laugh. I, I don't know. Really good show. Would also recommend Bojack Horseman because it's very real and it hits you hard in terms of talking about things that are sometimes uncomfortable. Uh, I think it does it in a very smart way and, and dives into Hollywood from kind of a behind the scenes perspective in a way that not many shows accomplish. I'm trying to think of a good third one. I'm watching Skins right now, so maybe I'll recommend that if you're into, like, the teen kind of stuff, whether it's Riverdale or, uh, I know back in the day, The O.C. was something that everyone watched. Yes. This is, like, the British version that I never watched, and I'm fine. There are actors in this movie that are, I I didn't realize. I'm like, oh, my God. The the guy from Slumdog Millionaire is in it. It was his first ever appearance on a TV show. Huh. He 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 was he hadn't even acted before. This was his first ever uh, thing that he did. A few characters from Game of Thrones, Gilly from Game of Thrones. There, um, I've never seen Kendrick Game of Baratheon. Thrones. <laughs> well, so a lot of people have. <laughs> I feel like I'm definitely uh, in the minority. Show. Those are my three. All Those right. are my three. Really curious what your three are. Um, Shit's Creek. It's a nice CBC uh, one. It's on Netflix. Um, it's actually filmed near where I live. So I drove by, unbeknownst to me, their filming set all the time, and I never knew what they were filming. It is such a heartwarming um, series. It's only, like, 21 minutes per episode, and it's it's really awesome. It covers, like, LGBTQ. It covers... Um, just a bunch of really heartwarming stuff, and it's absolutely hilarious. The Levies, Eugene, Eugene Levy is one of my favorite actors. Yeah. Anything he's in, I feel like he steals every scene. And Dan Levy, who is his son, is actually the writer slash producer, and it's one of my favorite TV shows. When I came back from New Jersey, I binge-watched that, and I've been addicted ever since. Uh, Suits is probably my favorite TV show of all time. Um, Can I just say that Suits, is it season six where things get a bit ridiculous? I I don't know. Like, I enjoyed it all the way through, and... Um, I enjoyed it up until a major thing happened in season six. I don't want to spoil anything, but I loved that show. That show, the first few seasons, oh my god, I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, I love me some Harvey Specter. Um, and then Ew, I'm a Mike Ross guy. Get out of here. My third one, I'm... It's... Okay. This is going to sound terrible, and I'm definitely exposing myself here. Jersey Shore. Because if you just want to oh watch my utter God. stupidity, I'm, I'm up right now. then you watch that show. Because that show You're just like... you my sister. She watches some of the trashiest or TV. Or like 90 Day Fiance. I love that. But that's not like... You can't binge watch that. Whereas like Jersey Shore, you could binge watch because it's on Crave. Um, Letter Kenny is another one. It's filmed in Sudbury, but those are kind of. If you're a hockey are... fan, Letter Kenny actually is pretty hilarious. Oh my, it's so funny. It's anyway, so basically those are my Travis Konechny. 
Have you ever heard Travis Konechny trash talk? Yes, it's basically that. He's Letterkenny. I feel like he grew up in that town. <laughs> Letterkenny is what every American thinks Canadians talk like. Oh, yeah, bud. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you're Templi. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Holzer. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, so those are our recommendations. They're on Netflix and whatever else. Uh, quarantine snacks. And before we get into this, only because I know that you are going to bring this up, I have not had McDonald's in a week. And That's good, because I feel like McDonald's is where most of the germs are these days. <laughs> considering that how much I normally eat it, and now I'm quarantined and having peak anxiety, this is when I would eat it most. I haven't had it for a week, and I, I'm not going to lie to you, I'm going through a bit of withdrawal. Um, I walked by one today on my trip to the supermarket to pick up toilet paper for survival, and <laughs> McDonald's the chairs were on top of the table, and the and the chairs were taped to each other so no one could grab them and put their hands on them like as a surface. And I'm just like, wow, this is like a weird world we live in right now, where McDonald's is open but taping its chairs to each other on top of the tables upside down so that no one touches the chairs. Uh, it's it's a weird society we're living in right now. I don't know how this is gonna be weird to explain to your kids. Mm-hmm. When they ask what it was like, and it's just, it, it, it's not life or death, it's just bizarre. And if you do well, the right it is life for, or death, people are dying. It's life or death for a lot of people. For myself, it's like, I know I'm not going to die from this, but I'm trying to do everything I can to prevent spreading a disease to other people. And it's just like, wow, this is a weird rule where why don't you just close the McDonald's? But no, we got to keep McDonald's open because people like I Rachel would, are going to eat that. Yeah, I would protest. <laughs> I would be so angry. To me, that's essential. But obviously, I'm wow. in full seriousness. It is not essential. Like, get a grip. Things like that are not essential. Anyways, buy an apple. Snacks. Can I be a terrible person and say an apple should be one of your go-to's because it's actually good for you? I'll be I'll be the parent who says stop eating junk food and eat an apple. Okay, so you'll be the healthy one. I will not. Okay, so, what so are I was your just at camp snacks? for two weeks, and I, I kept trying to tell kids, I'm like, just eat this. It'll give you energy. It's not terrible for you. Apples are good, though. Okay, so you have snack one from Ian, apple. What is snack two? I'm trying to think what I snack on these days, because we don't we don't buy junk food, usually. So, uh, <laughs> toast, does that count? It's something so simple. Yeah. It's like, I'm not hungry enough for a full meal. Toast but I'll counts, some toast like with peanut, some butter, peanut butter. Yeah, Yeah, because it's so basic, and it's something I know I can do. You know when you're lazy and you don't feel like cooking something? Yes. Bagel slash toast will be number two for me. Okay. Um, if I was going to buy junk food, this is my one junk food that I really like. Those crunchy jalapeno Cheetos, those are my weakness. Everything oh, else I'm good. pretty good at staying away from. But when it's like a Friday night or a Saturday night and people are buying some unhealthy snacks for the night, I'm thinking, ooh, if you're going to be eating chips, I know that I want my jalapeno Cheetos. Or if it's a movie night kind of thing. Healthy snacks are probably the way to go, but I know most people kind of have their junk food of choice. So <laughs> what are your top three? Uh, okay. Sour Patch Kids. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good. Um, I have made a commitment to myself that I have a healthy breakfast every morning. So like I either have like oatmeal or like avocado toast or muesli for breakfast so that I can be. And if millennials weren't spending their money on avocado toast, you know, we'd have a lot more money in this economy right yeah, now. Yeah, I don't why, pay why for the avocado, so I don't care. <laughs> Um, forget who wrote that article. That's one of my favorite articles about how millennials budgets were being spent too much on avocado toast. <laughs> so dumb. Okay. So Sour Patch Kids, um, I like those mini rice cakes. Um, the flavored ones that you can get. So like sea salt and lime, 
Um, like the crispy mini well, sour cream and onion. Like, I'm not a sour uh, cream barbecue onion or whatever. Um, any this is not going to come as a pr- surprise. Any kind of chocolate, so like Kinder chocolate, <laughs> Toblerone, that kind of stuff. Um, so like junk food in general. Um, and ketchup chips. Ketchup chips are actually pretty great. Yeah, those are mine. Um, yeah, there is not a whole lot of health going on there, but like sometimes apple, I'll crack baby. open like throw an apple in there. Throw just grab an apple. I <laughs> literally had craft dinner for breakfast yesterday. I mean, it's there. There are worse things out there for you. Yeah, but then I went back like this morning. I had oatmeal and avocado toast, so I feel kind of healthy. I've also been pretty strict on like protein shakes because when things kind of get thin like those can be beneficial for you um but yeah those are my top three i guess you're such an athlete drink uh, drinking your protein shakes blockchain amino acids i have a batman container and there are eight vitamins i take per day <laughs> do you do you have like the ones that are i don't know what you call them like the flintstones vitamins no. that, are, that taste good Oh, I miss those. No, those I eat so actual good. vitamins. Okay, I haven't had those in a while, but when I heard this giant pill case, I thought maybe you just threw that in there for fun. No, it is a Batman pill case that has seven days of the week, and it has, like, all of these vitamins in it uh, that we talked about last week that you should be taking, plus multivitamins, plus various other things. So I'm keeping up to date. That's the one thing I'm super diligent about, because even if I'm not eating the healthiest, which considering I had pizza pockets for lunch, um... I'm getting vitamins. <laughs> so quick preview for next week before we get out of here. You and I were thinking about recording a podcast, talking about tactically and kind of numbers wise, the difference between even strength and the power play. Right. And just when it comes to how you break down a defense, the players you want on the ice, how is it different? Because in my opinion, they're two completely different sports. I know we don't obviously consider them like that, but I think the strategy changes significantly, whereas I think Rachel is of the opinion that it's the same concepts, it's just there's more space. So we'll be talking about this in a lot more detail next week, but I think it could lead to a very good discussion. Yeah, so that's a little, I guess, preview for next week where hopefully things are starting to look up a little bit. And I mean, I've done the math. It only gets worse before it gets better because it's an exponential growth. But that's why staying inside is important. The good news is that the rate of change is going down and that, you know, the delta Y, delta X, if you if you remember that math problem, <laughs> that, that is getting smaller. It's getting smaller. It's still growing. It's still going up, but it's going up by less and less each day. And if we keep doing these things properly, eventually that tipping point won't be freakishly high if we're doing all the right things right now. Eventually, it's going to reach its peak and drop off. Like South Korea did a really good job of it. Exactly. And our goal is that when it reaches that peak, hopefully it's not high enough that there are, you know, not enough hospital beds and not enough doctors and not enough ventilators. Our goal right now is to keep everyone safe by staying indoors. And I think as a society, a lot of us are doing a good job of it. So, Kudos to everyone who's doing it right now, and let's just try our best to be safe over these next few weeks, few months. It's a weird time in life, but we're trying our best. Exactly, and obviously um, now is a time of need for a lot of people, so if you can lend a helping hand, please do that. If you absolutely have to go get groceries, see if your neighbor or someone elderly that you know also needs something and, like, Obviously, please social distance. I see people using hockey sticks as a measure of social distancing. Continue to do that. 
Um, and hopefully we get going in the right direction and find something to combat this thing because it seems to be mutating at a pretty high rate. But until then, let's stay positive, support each other, binge watch a bunch of stuff, binge eat all the healthy food that Ian told you, and maybe just eat what I said in moderation um, as I put a Sour Patch Kid in my mouth. And, and we will be back. And some of the articles that I'm going to be putting out because I still need to eat. <laughs> yeah, eating's good. Eating's good. I'm going to have some stuff out at The Athletic over the next week or two. It's uh, in, in, a, in the process of doing something a bit bigger right now. I'm excited for it, but I'll have more news on that probably coming up next week. Awesome. So we'll be back Tuesday as per usual. And we'll be talking about the difference between even strength and five on four. All right, looking forward to it. Have a safe week, Rachel. Talk to you next week. Sounds good. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff. <laughs>